Welcome to SMT Pod, the premier audio publication of the Society for Music Theory. This episode is a continuation of Tyler Howie and Matt Chu's two-part podcast entitled Analytical Frameworks for Post-Millennial Punk. To hear the first part, visit the episode page of our website at smt-pod.org. Hey again, I'm Matt. And I'm Howie. This is the second of two talks on post-millennial punk, entitled We Still Speak, Sing, Yell These Songs Well. So even though you won't need the first talk to understand this one, the context and history is useful, uh, and all of the theoretical material discussed here is, is contextualized by the history, so we recommend listening to that one first. Like in the first episode, we want to give a content warning. Many of the songs we play here will swear and may include triggering explicit content. So with that, let's kick things off with an undeniably punk icon, Taylor Swift. We're going to hear the original We Are Never Getting Back Together by Taylor Swift, and then a pop-punk cover by YouTuber Alex Melton. This is one of the coolest things about genre-converting covers. There's so much overlap between the examples, yet the changes in the musical parameters are the things that hugely impact our genre signaling for a listener. So Howie, um, what sounds different between these two recordings? First, first things first, the drums, man. The like oh, tom yeah. groove in the beginning. Yeah, 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 yeah. The like pop-punk breakdown drums. And then... Um, definitely you get the, like, the palm-muted, distorted power chords in the mm-hmm. guitar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big one for me. And I know you would like me to talk about the voice. <laughs> the vocals here, definitely a lot different, right? Especially in that chorus, we get a little bit of, um, not vocal fry, right? But, like, a harshness mm-hmm. in the vocals that we don't necessarily get in Taylor's version. I was also going to ask, would you say that Alex Melton is trying to emulate a particular pop-punk band or style? I would probably call it uh, generic, and not in, like, uh, a, with, no, with no negative valence attached to that term there, right? Generic meaning, like, it sounds of the genre. I'm going to play another clip from a recent 2021 release from the Philadelphia indie-punk band Carly Cosgrove. The song is called Monk. So what's different about the vocal delivery here as opposed to Alex Melton or Taylor Swift's version of We Are Never Getting Back Together? I think I think an important thing going on in the cover for it to work as a cover, especially you said it's on YouTube, right? Like, yeah? Okay. So this isn't just for like people who like whatever band and they're going to listen to their cover of Taylor Swift. This is supposed to be like, hey, everybody, check out my cover of Taylor. And I think that might be a reason why the lyrics are a bit more easy to understand in the in the cover, right? Maybe less so than in Taylor's original version, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which is more poppy 
but the pop punk cover is adding in some of that yelling sort of thing without losing the lyrics so that you can still tell what's going on lyrically. And this one, I'm going to be real, first time hearing this song. I do love Carly Cross growth, though. First time hearing this song, I don't know what those words were. Uh, mm-hmm. at all yeah. so i think that's, that's one of the biggest this is, differences this is the time of the internet i had to google the words when i was listening to the song so um so perfect yeah perfect. it's also a very different embodied and physical sensation to not understand the words that someone is singing or, or yelling so this project is really probing the affect of vocal delivery and how it's used in some of these post-punk or indie punk styles um, but first, we should discuss the concept of vocal delivery in uh, other literature to situate it within the music theory community. So vocal delivery is this nebulous region of how singers, and I probably shouldn't say singers, but how vocalists quote-unquote sing. All the parameters that contribute to a vocalist singing or speaking or whatever is vocal delivery. So as we heard in the hook, we know that vocalists alter the timbre of their voices to produce different affects. Sometimes singers convey different discrete pitches, more or less, and in another paper with Andrew Blake presented at SMT, we quantitatively showed that post-punk singers have looser rhythms than pop-punk ones. And even though genre is infinitely more complicated than a single parameter, as we talked about in the first of these sessions, vocal delivery situates artists amongst other bands and, in that way, signals genre, at least partially. This is echoed in recent history. At the end of his dissertation, Serge Lacasse, who set the stage for the study of vocal delivery, or vocal staging, as he called it, he says, quote, To consider vocal staging from the perspective of stylistic analysis would therefore certainly help understand the intricate set of relationships maintained by a given style and its audience, end quote. Maybe it's because of this curious nebulousness, but there's been a lot of music theory research on vocal production and delivery in the past few years. Some of the recent talks on the topic have discussed vocal delivery conveying a singer's ego in the work of uh, Hanisha Kluth-Paran, acoustic properties of vocal sounds in Tanya Tagak by Christy Hardman, vowel delivery in prosodic dissonance by Iren F.S., and vocal delivery in Florence and the Machine by Madison Stevenson. Uh, I listen to a lot of punk, and I owe it to all of these ongoing papers to make me think critically about what the role of the voice is um, and how I'm interpreting it in these works. So after doing some research, I based my work here primarily on three sources, a system for describing vocal timbre in popular song by Kate Heidemann, vocal pitch and rap flow by Robert Komenyeki, and a blaze of light in every word by Victoria Malloway. In the first article, Kate Heidemann studies embodiment and vocal delivery. The article conceptualizes vocal production in terms of the body and vocal tract. For example, Kate connects the position of the vocal track and sympathetic vibration to what we often describe as nasally production. So like we heard in the Alex Melton cover for pop punk. Mm-hmm. We could also say when describing a singing delivery as breathy that it could be attributed to vocal folds not being entirely closed, as if extra air was leaking through. And we could also describe nasaliness, perhaps like that of Alex Melton, as caused from sympathetic resonance singing, uh, kind of singing into the nose. So Kate Heidemann's approach gives a reflective mimetic physicality to the sounds we're hearing. Okay, so I'm going to play an excerpt, and I want us to think about our singing apparatuses while listening. And afterwards, I'm going to ask us to describe the sensation, the physical sensation of singing the example. 
This is Radiator Hospital 181935. The party starts right now. I'll try back in now. Wow, I love Radiator <laughs> Hospital. Oh. I like top I they were not to plug any sort of evil streaming service that just told me all of the things I've listened to all year mm-hmm. long, but Radiator Hospital, they were up there, I think, number three. Oh. Uh, so, love it. Love um, it. Yeah, so can you describe your sensation or, like, what are you thinking physically in terms of, like, how the how the singer is delivering that? It feels sleepy, you mm-hmm. know? Lazy. Like, all right, I am going to put just as much effort as I need to to deliver these words on some sort of pitch, and that is it. No mm-hmm. more than that. Right? Yeah, I totally agree. And in terms of, like, physical apparatuses, we might describe that as, like, the vocal folds are not all the way closed or open. There's not a lot of air support going on during that time. So to deliver the pitch... Um, it's that that kind of gives it this sense of like sleepy or breathiness in addition. Oh, cool, interesting. Okay, so on to the second article. Robert Komenyaki's article approaches pitch techniques in vocal delivery, uh, as opposed to the kind of bottom-up approach that Kate takes in the uh, initial article. Robert's is more top-down, and by that I mean whereas Kate is examining the vocal tract. Uh, and the result of different positionings of the vocal tract, Robert uses a spectrum from speech-like delivery to singing delivery and discusses how examples use various techniques and fit within that spectrum. I think the uh, methodology is incredibly generalizable. It captures vocal delivery between speech and singing and can describe various musical styles as well. But one thing that sticks out to me is how certain vocal delivery styles in punk don't fit at times. So let's listen to this example. This is 5.45 a.m. by Max Seal. Hallie, thoughts about the vocal delivery in the example? Boy, uh, I got I got I love the voice crack in oh, the yeah. beginning, right, right uh, up front. Um, it's classic, and I will I will say, uh, if you enjoy this kind of music, you have not truly lived until you have been able to yell five forty five with a whole crowd of people like at back seal. It's very oh yeah, fun. I mean. I'll talk about community and like the participation later, but that's exactly what I was trying to get at is that it's um, the yellingness and like the kind of non-pitched yet still not singing directly is something that I, I miss from the spectrum. So in this way, I kind of want to expand the, the heuristic. Specifically, I want to expand the spectrum to include yelling. Uh, in Malloway's book, they talk about vocal delivery in multiple terms. Like Heidemann, they use laryngeal mechanics, but like Komenyeki, they also use terms of quality, using words like throatiness, roughness, and breathy. Malloway's book is a pretty broad overview of vocal delivery for pop music, and they also include a, a small section on yelling. So, in this episode of the podcast, I want to use these vocal delivery techniques and build a heuristic specific for indie punk and emo music. 
In discussing the following examples, I want to discuss things within a tripartite structure between spoken, sung, and yelled, and then discuss how they're used formally, and maybe even why they might be used in these punk songs. So let's talk about these three categories. First is singing, and by singing, I mean singing in a more traditional sense. To sing, the vocalist has air support, pitch stability, and usually prolongs vowels on the words. We know what singing is like, but let's hear an example in punk music. This is Pet Symmetry playing Please Don't Tell My Father That I Used His 1996 Honda Accord to Destroy the Town of Willow Grove, Pennsylvania in 2002. And I could not see my street sign In a lot of ways, it is very similar to our traditional singing style. There are still differences being like the way that vowels and consonances are still distributed over the word. So fine is still distributed. It's not, it's not all on the vowel. Um, it shifts the, the vowel from fine slowly over the word as opposed to what I think many of the classical singers are taught to do, which is to hold out a vowel until the very end, um, or make that shift kind of jarring. And that leads us right into the second corner of the triptych, which is the vocal delivery, which is more speech-like. And I've been calling this orationality, as in it's delivered in a more speech-like or spoken manner. So in punk, this is usually accompanied by a rougher timbre, is less supported, and the durations of the words usually parallel spoken words. And by that last part, I mean when many singers are taught to sing, I'm, they usually try to avoid the diphthong by emphasizing one of the vowels. So rather than I'm, uh, singers often sing I'm, and then tag that on to the, the very end of the word. So let's hear an example of orationality. Here's an example by the band Dry Cleaning singing the song Magic of Megan. We might describe the band earlier, Radiator Hospital, as uh, using a lot of orationality in some of their vocal delivery. So embodying any one of these characteristics of orationality kind of imbues it with the, the music with a speech-like quality. For example, uh, Blink-182's Tom DeLonge usually splits the diphthong as opposed to stressing a single vowel. Mm -hmm. So in this next example, even though Tom is singing in the following example, the fact that he splits the diphthong gives it an element of orationality. So this is I Miss You by Blink-182. Where are you? And I'm so sorry. I cannot sleep. I cannot dream tonight. I need somebody and always. This yeah, uh, the that example. Where are you? And the slow and move. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I also chatted to a singer friend about this. And he said this is colloquially known as chewing your words. So sometimes Broadway singers might like 
Yeah, it kind of feels like you're chewing as you're singing the word. So, um, splitting the diphthong. Anyway, and the last vocal delivery technique discussed here is yelling. And it doesn't have a nice buzzwordy ring like orationality, and it's also not a noun either. So, I mean, I guess we could call it yellitude, but I think that's academia speaking. Anyway, it has a rough timbre and is projected. In a way, it's giving speaking more projection and adding an even rougher timbre. To project more, yelling usually stresses vowels as opposed to a fluid mix of orational delivery. And a reminder that everything here is located on a spectrum and these categories bleed into one another. Using a supported delivery with sustained values might contribute to both orationality and yelling. Let's listen to an example. This is Welcome Mats by Just Friends. My emotions retract the other night thought I'd let you know. My emotions retract the other night thought I'd let you know. Since these techniques are situated at different sides of a vocal spectrum, changing vocal techniques adds contrast, and contrast is really useful for helping listeners distinguish different parts of the form. Recently, Drew Nobile presented an SMT paper on vocal delivery in Alanis Morissette, uh, where he did just this and discussed the formal implications of vocal delivery in Morissette's music. A music theorist might even say that vocal delivery techniques demarcate and have certain formal functions in a way. But I do want to make a distinction. Like Kate Heidemann, I really don't want to lose a sense of embodiment. This music is all about the listener and the affect it has on them in a show. And in a multivalent kind of way, I'm mostly interested in how these techniques interact with form. So for a small semantic shift, I want to call these participatory functions as opposed to formal functions. That is, how do these techniques cue the listener to hear and participate with the music? I'll be discussing four particular participatory I'll be discussing four particular participatory functions and how they interact with form. I'm calling them the yell drop, story building, company, and winding down. A lot of bands have the participatory functions in this order, so I'll go in that order. First up is the yell drop. In punk and emo music, yelling often encourages uh, two listener actions, yelling along with it or kind of going wild with the music. Going wild might include dancing or, or moshing or flailing your limbs. So for an example, 5.45 a.m., the yelling is a participatory function that gets people amped or involved. Yelling is visceral and high energy, and it sets the tone of the, of the rest of the song. So let's listen to 5.45 a.m. It's very nice because, uh, like, formally, right, they don't kick it off right with yelling 5.45 a.m. Mm -hmm. They kick it off with the, like, I hate that I still care to get mm -hmm. you, like, oh, that's the song we're hearing? All right, next, I get to yell 5.45 a.m. And I also heard some twinkling things going on in the beginning. Hmm, yeah. <laughs> Oh. Heard a little bit of that uh, in both of the songs we just listened to. Oh, some, weird. Uh, perhaps a schema of some sort. How um, odd. Unexpected. <laughs> with, with this stuff, I do have a question, right? So if yeah. it's a yell drop, when I think drop, like bass drop, I think of something that's like later in the song. 
mm-hmm. that you like build toward. And these ones, we're calling these yell drops in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything to say about that sort of relationship? Yeah, I think it's actually really interesting that, that you would say it. it's it really works as a kind of cue. And I was going to get to this later on, but I think in a lot of in a lot of ways, the the yell at the beginning is a kind of signifier for like a listener. If you hear a yell at the beginning, it kind of gives the energy for the rest of the song that you're going to listen to. So, like, in other words, it's kind of akin to the, the, a drop in EDM. And there's very much a theoretical connection to what uh, Alyssa Barna in an SMT video has called the dance chorus. So the influence of EDM on pop in around, like, 2013 makes it so that a lot of songs have drops right after a standard chorus. Um, and Brad Osborne has also remarked on this in a, in a forthcoming article in Integral and in unpacking the EDM's, EDM's influence on pop music. So whereas a dance chorus might occur as a section after the drop, the yell drop is a cue for listeners to engage with subsequent dancing. So it's a kind of uh, marker between Mm. sections, that yelling that that kind of gets built up to and then cues higher energy. So the story-building function is often conveyed with a more orational delivery perhaps more obvious uh, compared to choruses, verses usually have more lyrics. So if verses have, one, more words, two, faster-paced delivery to fit those words, and three, lower pitch, verses are often more skewed towards orational on the vocal delivery spectrum and hence kind of story building. So let's listen to the second verse of the front-bottom song, Flashlight. She says a lot of the kids we graduated with are now homeless, which puts them in mad shady are you are, so we're talking about the uh if not every day then on an every other day basis yes yeah, it's, yeah. it's really misaligned so you're you're a drummer like what's your what's your like metrical interpretation like how does that passage feel to you oh i love that um so like yeah, it feels like it's just, like, stretching it out, right? To me, it feels like it just, like, overflows the end of the phrase. And what's mm-hmm. cool is that, like, the drums are just keeping that groove going. So you really do feel that tension of... It's not like all the other instruments are also going to go over the end of, like, the nice square phrase. It's, like, just the vocals there. And so it's, like, really... Yeah, it really draws it out. Uh, oh, yeah. Probably, probably one of the reasons I got into the front bottoms. Yeah, definitely. Likewise, that like I think them using the word uncomfortable in that phrase is kind of uh, <laughs> like a direct parallel to my feelings about that musical passage where I'm like, what's what's going on? It, it kind of draws us into the lyrics. It's the kind of story building that I'm, I'm talking about. Usually during that part, it, you can you can synchronize to the drums, but I think the, the vocal misalignment makes it a little bit more difficult. So therefore, not everyone's going to be synchronized. So that. Uh, story building includes moments when there are people moving their bodies a little bit less and maybe less synchronized with uh, the others around them due to this less metrical delivery. Right, and and Brian Sella's voice is and delivery is so <laughs> particular. Oh. I don't think you can ignore it and just like lock into the groove and the drums. And it, what's fun is that it's probably I haven't seen the front bottoms in a long time, mm-hmm. but it's probably like a little bit different every show, right? And so there is like a, a nice looseness there. 
The company participatory function is cued by repetition of a memorable melodic line and often cues listeners to sing along with the music. So even if someone isn't familiar with the song, by repeating the line, it allows everyone to learn the line and eventually join in with, uh, with the kind of uh, communal singing or yelling. So let's listen to the middle of Yeah Yeah Utah by Marietta. So I think hearing this kind of layered vocal texture, which is like super common in this style, uh, is also a way of reminding us to to participate at that moment. Yeah. The reason I call it company or company function is due to the the musical affect, since so much in the music is about the physical experience at of, of being at a venue or being in a crowd. Singing with everyone else acts as a, a community building and and a rom- and just a reminder that you're existing in this in this space with with a bunch of other people. And um, the the actual delivery of it, I often hear it used with uh, accompanied by yelling, um, but oftentimes it can be it can be singing too. Um, and we'll we'll talk about another example later. Yeah, no, definitely. And um, another band this is big in is um, Select a Bonus, my uh, Texas emo guys. I'll always bring it back to them. <laughs> but. Um, I actually I've gotten to interact with them a little bit on like Twitter and stuff where they they have a few of these sections, especially on their most recent EP. They have a couple and um, they and some of the themes on the record have to do with like religion and like Mm. American Southern church experience. And um that I've talked to them a little bit about those like company parts and they said they're influenced like by church and stuff Oh wow! to okay. do those sorts of things. But then on the record, they like use them as a way to like refute church. So you keep like the participatory function, like, which is like a solidarity building experience. Uh, and you like, you flip it, you use those techniques. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting, cool. and like also nice to get like the uh, the band's perspective. You have any example that you like an example off the top of your head that you might want to share? Oh, off the top of my head, yeah, man. So it should be part of. It's on the 2019 EP. Where it's so easy in the bridge, right? So it is sort of like a, it's a, after a chorus. You might consider it like the dance section. Mm-hmm. But here we go. Mm-hmm. Let's listen. This is the pit by Selecta Bonus. What about my family? They say Jesus Christ is ashamed of everything that you have become. Well, I'll just sing. It's fucking bullshit. So that's that one there. Um, but one thing I'd like to say about it is I you also get a little bit of what we just talked about with the front bottoms, right? That one mm-hmm. line where it's, uh, 
what about my family? They say Jesus Christ. Um, the A thing that would totally fit there and like line up the syllables would be like, what about my family? They say Jesus Christ is ashamed of everything about me or something, mm-hmm. right? Instead, they stretch it out and they make it not rhyme. So it sticks out a bit. You get the, what about my family? They say Jesus Christ is ashamed of everything that I have become, right? Mm -hmm. And then you get the nice breakdown. And also, you get that kind of like fading out thing toward the end there, right? Where it is like a yelling break and then like it slowly dissipates. And I believe you are going to be talking about that. Yeah, that's, I think that's a pretty good segue. So yeah, I would definitely say it's it's company, but as opposed to like some of the, the yelling that we've heard earlier, this is definitely lower energy. The next uh, participatory function that I was going to talk about is the winding down function. So it's cued by, usually, it's usually cued by more breathiness. Uh, sometimes it's cued by less yelling and support, and but it, it is often cued by longer durations. So this function lets us know that the music is kind of coming to an end. Um, in this case uh, that, w- that we just heard, there's a lot less energy too. So like the rhythmic activity has died down. So it's kind of signaling that it's ending. But simultaneously, as we just talked about, this was also company. One example that I wanted to talk about was uh, modern baseball's Every Day at the very end of it. Iconic, oh. <laughs> iconic ending. So the, the music here embodies the, the physical conveil of winding down as well. There are longer durations, and that, those longer durations conveys lower energy. It requires less energy to be singing and uh, singing less supported, and the, the longer durations also emulates a kind of uh, lengthier breath or, or energy-wise or kind of coming to a rest. So I think that the physical embodiment there of musical durations embodying uh, our breathing pattern is... is um, very appropriate yeah and the lyrics there are perfect for that sort of musical vibe Mm. right waking up every day is about doing things you don't want to do one thing that i did want to highlight is that these participatory functions are not mutually exclusive with traditional form labels even though the winding down example in every day was never sang throughout the rest of the song it doesn't mean that it couldn't be implemented during the repetition of say a chorus or something For example, bands frequently repeat the chorus at the end of a song and cut the other instrumentation. So here's an example from Arm's Length, Garamond. What you've got here in 
Yeah, so I'll say anecdotally that when I saw Arm's Length in concert uh, recently, they did end with this song Garamond. So it's this kind of, uh, even though the chorus is used throughout as a kind of buildup of energy in the end of the song, they use it to... Uh, to wind down their whole set. So by like cutting out the instrumentation, uh, we kind of know that the, the whole set is ending. So it's a good cue for us. Um, but even during that show, everyone was still yelling along. So the repetition of the chorus also acts as a kind of uh, company participatory function. So it's both company and winding down. Which brings me to the the final section that I'm going to talk about, which is there are also situations in which participatory functions are used simultaneously. And in the context of rock, Trevor de Klerk calls the mixing of formal parameters blended sections. So what? So we might call this blended participatory functions. For example, winding down and company often mix together in outros, like the one that we just heard. In Never Saw It Coming, we shift from a steady upbeat acoustic guitar pattern in the rest of the song to something much slower and with a heavy reverbed voice in the background. So let's listen to Never Saw It Coming by Tiger's Jaw. Yeah, so we shift from this like pretty steady, upbeat guitar to a, a slower section. And even though the energy seems to go up, it, like the, it's a lot louder, the timbre changes, the actual rhythmic activity slows down. So it combines a kind of uh, company setting in which it's repeating this, uh, the higher vocal line and inviting people to sing along with that looped section, but yet it's still winding down in a kind of rhythmic activity. So... It takes the long-winded and slow rhythm that's essential to winding down, but imbues it with that uh, repetitive company affect. So this song is definitely a show-ender, um, and it's a pretty common blended effect, and we can also hear it in the uh, in Traveler's Insurance by There, 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 with the classic shift to halftime. Another example of uh, company blended is with uh, Yell Drop in Sweaty Hams by Nice. The line, I know you're on the phone with your mother, is first sang quietly with limited accompaniment, but then it's immediately repeated, signaling the company function. Uh, the yelling coordinates with the repeat, emphasizing the participation. Let's give Sweaty Hams a listen by Nice. Uh... As I pull it up, I'd like to specify that hams, uh, the the beer, right? Not yes. like <laughs> not, roast. Not, yeah, no. Yeah. yeah, honey, whatever. Okay, here yep. we go. The hell you're... I know you're 
So a lot of these uh, functions we've been talking about, I think, are present in, uh, once again, I must bring up Origami Angel, Ooh, right? yes. In their first uh, LP, Somewhere City uh, concept album, the last song is a medley of a bunch of the other ones on the record. Mm-hmm. It might be all of them. I'm not totally sure. <laughs> um, and this is common. This happens a lot in pop punk. Uh, the Wonder Years have done it on a couple albums. I'm pretty sure Fall Out Boy's done it um, back in the day, too. Um, of just taking a bunch of the choruses from the record and making like a medley in the last tune on the record. What's cool about the Origami Angel one is that um, all of these voices are layered on top of each other, right? They're all singing different choruses. Some of the choruses are, like, augmented. Some are, like, faster to, like, get them to line up uh, in cool ways. And then, eventually, all of the voices um, merge together in that they all start yelling or singing the same lyrics rather than layering a bunch Mm. of different choruses on top of each other and the way that they all merge um uh matt you might be better at discussing all of the functions but i think we have a yell drop and a company and by the end of the song we are like winding down so i'm I'm excited let's let's give it a listen that guitar just plays us out uh interestingly enough it is um the same way the album starts so you could just like oh great put it yeah. on a loop it's nice, nice. yeah yeah i mean def- right, what do you think about origami angel oh yeah this is like a culmination in some ways of like what we could talk about from the from the rest of the paper we could throw all of our uh terminology at at it so we start with a lot of like i would say more traditional type of singing um, I'll, I'll talk about just the vocal delivery first. We start with a bunch of singing, and then we move into like a more yelling texture. Although that layered voice, there's a lot of singing going on. There's a lot of yelling above it, um, and yeah, then you get you get all of it. And then on top of that, we also have a bunch of the um, participatory functions. Like as you said, we have that yell drop leading us into the company, and then finally we get a winding down in the very uh, end. So I think this is a great example. Yeah, thanks for thanks for bringing it in. Yeah, man, always happy to bring in more Origami Angel. Yeah, thanks for bringing it into class. Yes, wonderful. (laughs) I brought enough to share, don't (laughs) worry. So it feels like we're really just getting started here, um, and we've just 
laid some of the groundwork for some more theoretical conversations and in how voice plays into punk and voice plays into punk in theory specifically. But I feel that in doing so, we have more questions now than when we started. So like, do certain bands evoke certain participatory functions more than others? Is there a consistent correlation between the participatory functions and standard formal analysis or between those participatory functions and vocal delivery techniques, which is uh, in some ways what I was arguing for? Um, and my gut is to say, to some degree, uh, so how might we find such functions? Um, could we perhaps use audio processing techniques? And lastly, connecting with Howie's talk, how does genre kind of predetermine or influence the expected participatory functions? Or maybe the other way around, how do such calls for participation allude to a particular genre? So by yelling in the very beginning of a song, maybe we're told what type of participation and what genre and community we're participating in. So perhaps the subtle interactive musical gestures within vocal delivery help situate listeners within a particular operative body of musical relations. Thank you for listening. to thank the SMT editorial board, especially Megan Lyons and Jenny Beavers. And we also want to thank the outside reviewer, Dave Easley, whose insightful comments really contributed to the project. And Matt and I would like to thank our friend Jeff, who has spent hours talking to both of us about emo. So thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Visit our website, smt-pod.org, for supplemental materials related to this episode. And join in on the conversation by tweeting your questions and comments at SMT underscore pod. SMT pod's theme music was written by Zhang Cheng Lu with closing music by David Voss. Thanks for listening.